Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be salt and light in every season of life. God's anointing brings great responsibility. Too many leaders fail or fall because they rely on their own strength and wisdom. David Ravenhill explains how dependency on God is essential. You'll hear the criteria needed for a move of God to outlast a moment. If you need refreshing from the Lord, this message is for you. After this episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit a word in season podcast.org. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. It's great to have David Ravenhill with us today. Your father, who I quote often, Leonard Ravenhill, had a, literally an indelible impact in my life that continues today. I still quote him often and call him like a a spiritual grandfather because in many ways he reached out to me initially and I was like, whoa, Leonard Ravenhill. And and I remember the the notes I would get from him. I still joke about it that they were written in such a way it was almost like interpreting tongues. I had to interpret them and type them out to go, no, oh, that's right. That's what he's saying. Really the huge impact he had on my life. And of course, as a result of that, the impact you've had on my life as a friend, but also through your teaching and the ability by which to take prophetic challenge, exhortation, at the same time, filtering it through a pastoral lens because of the many years that you've also pastored. But it was like this prophetic pastoral, ouch, that hurts so good challenge that you've been able to bring. You were born in England. I think it was the late 50s. You all moved to the United States and then became a part of Bethany Fellowship in Minnesota. Tell us a little bit about the history of what brought you here and a little bit about the things you were involved in, like with David Wilkerson and Teen Challenge and YWAM. We came to the States uh, in 1958. I was uh, 15 years of age at the time. And what brought that about was that uh, from about 1950, my father was traveling extensively in the States, ministering in uh, various places. In uh, 1951, I believe it was, he was ministering for A.W. Tozer. Uh, they put him in a hotel in uh, Chicago, downtown Chicago. In the middle of the night, the hotel caught on fire. The only way that my father could get out of that building, all the internal exits were either full of smoke or fire, was to open the window and jump. And so he jumped two or three stories. He had a gentleman that traveled with him at the time that was an Irish plumber by the name of Tom Hare. And much like Finney and Father Nash, Tom Hare would pray while my father preached. As a result of that, uh, that jump, my father broke his back in three places, uh, one leg in three places, the other leg in two places. But uh, before he hit the ground, God gave him the verse from uh, the Psalms, you shall not die but live and declare the glory of the Lord. My mother, within 24 hours, being a nurse, was at his bedside. We were farmed out, my two brothers and myself, to different people in the uh, congregation. After a number of months, they flew my father back to England. Around that time, we bought a farm in Ireland. My mother's Irish and uh, lived there until I was almost 15 years of age. By that time, my father was uh, had recuperated sufficiently to begin traveling again. Since most of his ministry was in the States, he said, you know, it's uh, pointless, me being in America, my family being back in England. And so we made the move as a family to move to uh, the States. Bethany Fellowship, uh, known now for uh, Bethany Press or Bethany Global University, opened their doors and uh, said to my father, if you ever move to America, you're welcome to uh, settle here. So we lived there for about seven years. I uh, went through high school and then uh, Bible school there where I met my wife. Following that, uh, my dad had had some meetings at the uh, Full Gospel Businessmen's International Convention, I think it was in Denver, met David Wilkerson, who was the other speaker. The Cross and Switchblade had just come out. I was in my uh, final year of Bible school, stayed up half the night reading The Cross and Switchblade. Uh, David had invited my father to come out and see the work firsthand, and so we made a trip out there. And as a result of that, the door opened for my wife and I, after we got married, to move. So after a two-week honeymoon, we... uh, began ministry with uh, David Wilkerson in uh, New York City. Most of the time, I was uh, working with uh, Dave's mother, who uh, ran the catacomb chapel, the coffee shop, three or four nights a week from about 7 to 11 in Greenwich Village. And then the rest of the time, I worked uh, doing uh, odds and ends uh, at the uh, center and primarily doing some of the publication. My dad put out a little magazine along with David after the name of the book, The Cross of the Switchblade. 
And so I sort of did some of the liaison work and layout work and uh, sort of artwork for that uh, little uh, paper. During that time, I went to a meeting in uh, Assembly of God Church in uh, Manhattan, where uh, Dino was a pianist. That was before Dino became famous for his uh, gifted piano playing and so on. He was just a young guy, I think about 17 or 18 years of age at the time. But the, uh, the speaker that evening was Lauren Cunningham uh, of uh, Youth for the Mission. And uh, he was speaking about the need of people going to the islands. And we were actually in communication while we were at Teen Challenge with a couple from New Zealand who had gone to uh, Bible school as a result of my father's ministry in uh, New Zealand. And we were corresponding with them. They were at uh, Bethany, like I said, Bethany Fellowship. Our plan was that when they got through with school to uh, link up and uh, try and uh, do a ministry in the, uh, in the islands of the South Pacific. As a result of that, I went up to Lauren at the end of that meeting and uh, said to Lauren, you know, we're interested in the island. Uh, told him about this couple and he said, I'd love to meet the couple. Long story short, we all rendezvoused at Bethany. And this, uh, this couple, the, the, uh, the wife, her father had a ministry on the Great Barrier Island, which is an island off the coast of New Zealand, which later became a YWAM base. She invited Lauren to come down and speak. Long story short, my wife and I took a freighter from New York City. We had a daughter at this age of about three months. We took a, a freighter from New York down through Savannah, Georgia, Newport News, through the uh, Panama Canal, and eventually arrived in New Zealand 30 days without uh, seeing land. And the first home we went into was uh, Joy Dawson. We were instrumental in uh, linking Joy Dawson with Youthful Mission. Of course, she's become a major pillar in that organization. And so uh, that's how we got involved with the uh, Youth of the Mission. And uh, we were with them for about seven years, eventually taking teams into the Pacific Islands. And then a uh, long story short, eventually in charge of the uh, New Guinea base in uh, Port Moresby, New Guinea, where at that time I met a man by the name of Peter Morrow that you knew. Mm -hmm. And so resigned from YWAM, not because of any problem, but I just fell in love with a man that was a, a real father figure. And so we went to New Zealand, began uh, uh, attending a, a small Bible school that he had, sort of an in-house Bible school, about 25 students. At the end of that period of time, uh, I became uh, one of the elders of a church that grew from maybe three or 400 by the time we first arrived to uh, 2000 and became one of the mega churches in New Zealand for a little while. In fact, for a while, it was the largest church. And so for 15 years, I, uh, I worked with uh, Brother Peter Morrow, which were uh, some of the highlights of my entire ministry, and I could go on and on. But anyway, there's a little bit of a background as to uh, uh, my own uh, ministry. What's amazing is you were sharing some of the, uh, the relationships, and I realized just how influential uh, many of those people, obviously your dad, you, David Wilkerson, Peter Morrow, so many, Ray Comfort, obviously, because right. Ray Comfort attended that church that you were co-pastoring right. with. And right. in fact, I first met Ray in the late 80s. I was in Christ Church, New Zealand, and actually ministering at uh, Peter Morrow's church. And I was staying right there near Cathedral Square. There used to be a movie right. theater, and I was right on top of the movie theater. Oh, my goodness. And that's how I first met Ray. I saw him out there on a stepladder talking and going right. bantering with the, the wizard. And, right, right. Uh, and so we met that day and ended up uh, having, I had coffee. I'm not sure what he drank. I don't think he drank coffee, but that's how I first met Ray before he ever moved to the United States. And of course, you knew him well. So it's just so many relationships that are interconnected. And I always believe that relationships give definition to our life and ministry. And, right. and I think it's important for us to draw off the foundations that have been laid. And you've obviously carried that. You also pastored in Gig Harbor, Washington for a time as well. That was a, uh, a vineyard church uh, when I was with Mike Bickle in Kansas City. Doors open, long story short, I was going out to uh, that uh, neck of the woods and uh, ministering for a gentleman that had a, uh, a ministry called uh, Sort Out, primarily uh, young people from about the age of uh, 20 to uh, mid-40s. A lot of single couples, and uh, the church I ended up pastoring, the ministry, uh, the, the minister fell morally, and uh, the uh, secretary used to attend these uh, retreats that I would speak at, and she put my name forward, and uh, as a result, they asked me to come out and, uh, and pastor, which was uh, one of the highlights of my, uh, my life, really. It was the first time I'd been in charge. I'd always been in the team ministry, and I'm a very strong uh, team 
player and a believer in plurality of leadership, but um, that was the first time where I actually had to sort of take the reins myself. But uh, God gave me a wonderful team. I was there five years during that time with the Vineyard Movement and uh, got to know John Wimber a little bit. And, uh, and of course, it come from Mike Bickle prior to that. That was when there was the whole controversy of the uh, Kansas City Prophets. And, uh, and so that was a whole new era that I went through. And well, I remember those days at Kansas City Fellowship long before it became known as International House of Prayer. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, there was that plurality there. You're part of the senior leadership. Right. And what I saw working there was that you had many giftings, but there was mutual accountability. But of course, anything that is a forerunner or pioneering, there's all kinds of things that attach itself to it. There's things to grow and learn through. The scripture says that if you want to get the work done, you have to use the oxen. Yeah. But use yeah. the oxen, the trough was going to get a little bit dirty and murky yeah. right in the process. Uh, from being at Kansas City Fellowship, that would have been back in the, was that in the 80s? Uh, we came back to New, uh, from New Zealand in 88. And then I joined Mike in 89, and I was with Mike uh, until 92, and then the next five years out in uh, Gig Harbor, Washington, and then from there on, uh, we actually moved then down to uh, Pensacola to uh, work with Steve Hill in the Pensacola Revival. And uh, so for a couple of years, I traveled with uh, what they call the Awake America Crusade, and then that opened the door for um, me to minister, so I spent the last 25 five years or more just uh, traveling nationally and internationally and, and so on. Yeah, I remember those days because, of course, I actually met Steve Hill the first time when your father, Leonard Ravenhill, at that time, he, he only was ministering to a Bible study for Calvary Commission. And Joe Foss is right. actually on the call today. Oh, and, really? Okay. Uh, yeah, another great influencer in my life. Just all he's done yeah. to pioneer Calvary Commission and, and uh, has a great influence in my life as well. But I remember we had about 26, 27 of my team with me at Calvary Commission that they allowed us to use one of the facilities there. And Brother Ravenhill, your father, was ministering to us for the weekend. And I remember someone came in and said, excuse me. He goes, I know this is your meeting, but is it possible? I've been a missionary in Argentina, and would it be possible for me to be a fly on the wall? Because I'd really love to hear Leonard Ravenhill. I said, Sure. Turns out his name was Steve Hill. And so that's how Steve and I became friends was actually at that meeting. (laughs) And so during Pensacola Revival, Steve had contacted me and and said, look, I've got uh, Bob Phillips, David Ravenhill, Michael Brown, all these people are here, but I really would like you to come and sense for yourself if God is really in this thing. I've been praying every day for the grace of God. And so I went out there, but I remember just to see the, the presence of God because of it was accountable. It was pastored. It had key leadership. And it wasn't just about the movement. It was about what do we do with what God does in the hearts of people that are getting saved or touched for calling. And a missions movement came from that. So to me, that had all the criteria, I believe, for an authentic move of God that would outlast a moment, which of course, every great water hole is a moment, but it is the fruit going to continue. And I saw that the fruit seemed to remain and was being pastored and being uh, nurtured by so many of you. And, and so that must have been a unique situation as well to be there. Of course, you and Pastor Bob Phillips, who I had known since the mid-80s as well, when uh, he and David Wilkerson were pastoring a place called The Church up in, okay. uh, in East Texas. Uh-huh. And then, of course, they went on to pioneer Times Square Church. Yeah, Bob, uh, Bob and I would uh, do the afternoon sessions of the Awake America Crusade, so I got to know Bob. Uh, pretty well. He had some amazing stories of, uh, of uh, his uh, his own journey and so on. You know. Because of your history and all the connections, you bring a, a lot of richness of treasures of the kingdom that has helped define who you are. But at the same time, God has given you some unique insights, as A.W. Tozier would talk about prophetic insight. And so you've written quite a few books And I just want you to take some time just to share things that God has given you that you feel like are some key points that for all of us to persevere in our leadership. We are all met with unexpected detours. No leader sets out to say, I can't wait to fail, but things do happen. And so everyone has those visions of grandeur, but we see some stumbling blocks along the way. How have you been able, by what you've learned, what God has given you to help us to persevere courageously, but also persevere in the calling that God has given us, and then share 
some of the principles of some of your books. I know I have two in front of me that I love. In fact, I endorsed um, endorsed them was Bloodbot, Discovering the Truth of Our Redemption by David Ravenhill. And then another one is called The Jesus Letters, Seven Secrets That Can Change You and Your Church. And of course, you have so many other books. I, I, I remember another one. It was, I can't remember the title. It was They Drank from the river, but they died uh, in the desert. Died in the wilderness. Died in the wilderness. Because right. you can get around all this exciting stuff that's going on. If it doesn't become a part of you, you can still dry up in the desert or right. in the wilderness. Right. I need to go back to the beginning as far as my own uh, ministry is concerned. I would be what you would call the, the run to the litter. Uh, I had uh, two brothers, an older brother, younger brother, that were both uh, top of their class, sort of aced uh, their way through uh, uh, through school, and I was the one that always brought home the Fs on my report card, you know. I thought it stood for fantastic until I realized that it uh, really stood for failure. But anyway, and so I always struggled. They said I was one of the most nervous students they ever had in Bible school. Uh, we were divided into, it was only a small group of uh, 25 students uh, in, uh, in the year I went through. Uh, we were divided into two groups for homiletics, and the uh, professor, if you like, or the teacher would spend uh, five uh, two minutes in one group listening to uh, what was supposed to be a five-minute message and then go into the other room and uh, listen to the uh, the ending of the uh, the next person and then sort of critique, you know, whether you had good eye contact and, and so on and so forth. He made the mistake of beginning in the other room. By the time he got back into, uh, uh, into where I was speaking, I had exhausted my knowledge of the Word of God in, uh, in literally two minutes and was already seated. The worst thing was my head would shake. Uh, I know we talk about our knees knocking, but literally my head would just go like this. And I literally just absolutely dreaded public speaking. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, I'd have rather given my, uh, my left hand, um, I'm left-handed, uh, to, uh, you know, have that cut off than have to, to speak. Uh, and I, I say that because I, I've looked back now over um, uh, almost six years of uh, ministry and realize that God gave me a gift, and that gift was absolute dependency on God. In my own ability, I had absolutely nothing to draw from. My well was dry. And so from the very early days of my ministry, I had to literally draw from God for God's grace, God's strength, God's enabling. That really is, uh, I would have to say, is the, the secret to uh, my entire life. In fact, uh, Peter Morrill that we mentioned, who was the, the pastor of the church in uh, New Zealand. He was a man that lived uh, a life of fasting and prayer. And even though we had a big building at the time, a big uh, theater building, four-story building, uh, he seldom came into town apart from when he spoke. But occasionally the phone would ring and he would uh, call my office and say, David, I'm coming in this afternoon into town, which was literally only about two miles from where he lived. But he said, uh, would you have time for a milkshake? And a milkshake was cold for a cup of tea, coffee, whatever, but getting together with the senior pastor. And uh, he would knock on my uh, office door. We would take the elevator down or, uh, or take the stairs down, find a little coffee shop in the middle of Christchurch somewhere, find a secluded spot in the back of the, uh, uh, that coffee shop. And then he would begin to ask me questions like, uh, you know, how are you getting along? How are you and Nancy getting along? And, you know, you had a tendency like most men to sort of give the headlines fine, you know, everything's fine. But he had a real prophetic edge to him. And he put that bony finger out and said, now, David, come on, tell me how you're really getting along. You know, you'd end up sort of spilling the beans about your marriage or whatever. But he, he had a genuine pastoral uh, love that uh, you knew that you could trust him, that he wasn't just there probing and trying to get information. He really wanted to know how you're doing. But somewhere in that conversation, and it happened numerous times, he would ask me about my prayer life. He would say, David, don't ever forget, I don't ever want you in the office, meaning the, the church office, I don't ever want you in the office in the morning until you spend at least an hour on your face before God. And as a young man, really had a few years in ministry prior to that, but uh, you know, he, he was my, my spiritual mentor. My father obviously prayed, and I saw him praying. But uh, then God separated us in the sense of uh, my ministry uh, developed more in New Zealand than anywhere. But it was as a result of Peter Morrow just, uh, you know, holding me accountable. And uh, I would go out. Uh, we had a, a, a large house 
and a double garage, but the uh, garage was not attached. It was attached to the house, but there was no way of going from the garage into the house. You had to go outside. But uh, the, the garage was big enough to have a, a little uh, workroom. It was about eight feet long, maybe about uh, three, four feet wide. It was uh, full of uh, paint cans when we bought the house. I cleaned that out, put a door on the end, put some carpet down. And every single morning, I would go out there, say goodbye to my wife, go out, get on my face before God, and spend that time in prayer. And I, I came to realize, and of course, uh, Peter made it very clear, that ministry flows out of relationship. And even though we had a big church and there was all sorts of activities going on, as you can imagine, 2,000 people, you've got 2,000 problems. And yet uh, the number one emphasis he put on was spending time alone with God. And uh, I think I look back on that. I've been asked, you know, dozens of times over the years by young men, women going into the ministry, what is, uh, you know, what is the number one thing you would say? And I would, uh, you know, unequivocally say, you know, dig your own well, you know, have a place where you know you can draw from. So when the going gets tough and so on, you can find your, you know, you can go to that place and find that refreshing that only comes from the presence of God, you know. And so over the years, you know, I've never neglected that. I don't care where I am. Obviously, sometimes, I, you know, when I was traveling, I was up at, uh, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock in order to get a 6 o'clock flight. But somewhere during that day, I would get alone and, uh, and get that time in uh, uh, just uh, uh, in the presence of God. So to me, that's really the, uh, the number one key and number one secret. I know it sounds very basic. I remember Tommy Tenney uh, a number of years ago talking about the woman uh, with the uh, uh, cruise of oil. Uh, Elijah comes, of course. She's lost her husband. He's uh, come to see how she is. She's in dire straits. She's uh, just at the end, uh, just about the, at the end of her resources. And of course, he tells her, as we well know, you know, go and borrow vessels. And uh, he emphasized, again, not a few. In other words, don't get one or two vessels, get as many as you can, and then go into your closet, basically, and shut the door, and then pour out. And I remember Tommy Tenney, and I've never forgotten it, he says, the more emptiness you can present to God, the more of his fullness you can receive. Wow. And I've never forgotten that, you know, don't don't just get one bottle of emptiness or two bottles of emptiness, but, you know, get as much emptiness as you can. And I think, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the big problems in the ministry today is, that, you know, we go to college or seminary or whatever, and we, we get filled up with man's ability and man's knowledge and man's way of doing this and that. The other thing, there's very le little left for, uh, for God. And I, I think somewhere, you know, God ultimately will bring us to the end of ourself uh, until we, you know, we uh, were dry and we say, God, unless you build a house, we labor in vain. Wow. Uh, David, uh, I want to come back on something because there's so much you just said. You were emptied of yourself and realizing that you were the inability of your own capacity. I remember our, our mutual friend, Winky Prattney, he would say to God, uh, you know, that there were two things he didn't, he didn't want to do. And that was travel a lot and speak to a lot of people. And yet look what God did in his life. And yet we see today, and I borrowed that from myself because that's so true. But how many of us hearing what you just said, really pick up the fact that everyone that has influenced your life and your life has influenced came out of the place of authentic prayer. And your dad used to say, God doesn't answer prayer. He answers desperate prayer. Yeah. Yeah. And too often our prayers become just shallow platitudes or religious incantations, but there's something about the authenticity of passionate and desperate prayer that engages God rather than just trying to be religious. And right. so it seems that David Wilkerson and, and of course, uh, Joe Foss, your dad, you, Mike Bickle, Peter Morrow, all these relationships we've been talking about, they really would say that it's not just simple. That's a priority. Prayer is communication and intimacy with God, it's out of that place yeah. comes true success. And too often, people want to see what people do and say, oh, I want to do that, and think that's the success. But the success is the hidden place, isn't it? Amen. Yeah, speaking of Winky Prattney, I remember standing outside the uh, Youth of the Mission office. We actually uh, shared a printing press for a while. I would uh, run the printing press for YWAM back in the uh, late uh, 60s. And then Winky would use it at nighttime. And uh, he actually lived on the, on the campus there. I remember Winky had been away for an, uh, a number of weeks, I should say. And we, we met up again and uh, uh, we were sharing. And, uh, and he made this statement. He said, David, 
Have you ever noticed, and he took me to Mark, uh, I think it's chapter 4, verse 12, thereabouts, and uh, it was talking about Jesus, how he came down from the mountain, and he appointed 12 disciples, and then sent them out, uh, you know, heal the sick, raise the dead, and so on and so forth. But Winky drew my attention, he said, do you notice that the first thing that Jesus did after appointing the 12, it says he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And I remember Winky looking at me, eye to ball to eyeball, and said, David, you realize we have no right to go out to preach until we've spent time with him. Wow. Wow. And I thought, boy, you know, what a, what a lesson. I've, I've shared that uh, around the world. But uh, the first thing was he didn't appoint 12 preachers. He appointed 12 people to be with him. You know, and then John, of course, begins his epistle, that which we've seen, we've heard, our hands have handled. You know, I, I know him, therefore I can make him known. I, I've handled him. I've touched him. I've listened to him. I've watched him. I've seen him. You know, that was, that was John's introduction there to his epistle. And therefore I make known to you you know, in other words, firsthand experience. And, uh, and I think God's got to bring us to that place where we, we can say, listen, I've seen him, I've heard him, I've touched him, I know him, I've spent time with him. Without that, you know, we just go out and uh, put together a message or not a message, put together a sermon. And it isn't a message in that sense. It's just a sermon that we've sort of constructed or borrowed from somebody else, you know. Your dad, Leonard Ravenhill, used to tell me, and for, for me, you said that uh, you know, you would get that bony finger from uh, from Peter. I I would get that from your dad from time to time, and right. I didn't know if he was going to make it hurt so good. You know, and one moment he he'd be encouraging me, the next morning he says, "You're more ignorant than I thought," because he'd be asking, <laughs> me, you know, "Oh my goodness!" But it, I loved it. I love the authenticity and the genuineness of of that kind of fatherly challenge to me as a young minister. But he would say things like. He wrote me a note one time. It said, let others live on the raw edge or the cutting edge. You and I should live on the edge of eternity. And I've held on to that. There's so many things going on that I, if I could just recognize that every day, people are entering into eternity, many without Christ. And the other thing he would say to me is say, press on. I've only recently really fully understood what he meant by that. The only way to press on is to press in. And you just shared that. You have to be in the presence of Jesus, touch him, be there, hear yeah. him before we can be equipped to go out and anointed by God who's commissioned us. We have to be with him. Yeah. Well, I've got a, a message uh, ministered on it for many, many years about birthing a ministry, but it's based around the life of Samuel and uh, how God, of course, came to uh, Samuel's mother there and said that you shall conceive and bear a child, and the whole process of uh, conception, which obviously, you know, is a, uh, something that's hard to, uh, in a general audience, talk about, but I mean, there has to be total nakedness, there has to be the pressing in, you know, and, and all of those things, but I think there is a spiritual aspect to that too, in order for conception to take place. Conception doesn't ever take place at a distance, it's that intimate relationship that, that uh, you know, we all came into being through conception, but spiritual conception is very much the same. You know, God wants us to be in that place where we are totally naked before him, all things are naked and before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, we're not going to fool God. He knows exactly uh, who we are, what we're thinking, and so on and so forth. But to, to come with that total transparency, that total dependency, and, uh, and just uh, place ourselves in his presence and say, Lord, you know, I need your life to be imparted to me and that pressing in and, you know, allowing God to lay his burden upon us and, and so on. David, something you've taught me, but you shared a particular principle and I'm probably tearing it up, but here's the essence of it. And you use the analogy this particular moment. You said, if Doug invites me to his home and he gives me the keys and says, you know, my house is your house, feel at home, yeah. you know, this is your place. And that you, and, and Nancy were to go somewhere to go visit, you wouldn't expect when you came back to have me have sold the furniture, painted the walls, changed all the aesthetics, because I wasn't the owner of the home, I was an invited guest. Right. And so you gave the analogy that oftentimes we invite the Lord into our temple, or into our home, but he should be the owner of the lock, stock and barrel of our home and yet oftentimes we only give him the right to be the guest. If we really want the habitation of God, 
he needs to take ownership. And would you kind of touch on some of that? And is that written in one of your books? I think I have uh, touched on it in one of my books. I, I've literally uh, lost track of that. In fact, I was thinking of ministering on that uh, this Sunday morning. I have to preach at a little church that I'm uh, attending. I'm toying between that and, uh, and speaking on worship. Uh, the habitation of God uh, taken from uh, Deuteronomy 25, I think there's where God says to Moses, and it's not Moses at the end of 40 days of prayer and fasting begging God to come down. It's God coming to Moses and said, build me a house that I may dwell in. And then uh, I bring out that the, the first verse there is God's desire. He's expressing his desire to Moses, build me a house. I want to come and uh, dwell with you. And then the second verse is God's demands. This is how I want it built. And he, he goes into, you know, we've got what, 64 chapters or something in the Old Testament uh, concerning the, the building of God's house, all the details, the type of furniture, where it was to be positioned, the color scheme and everything else. And then I, I bring out that you can tell a lot about a person by visiting their home. Uh, even though that person may be not uh, there, if somebody would have given me the key to, you know, any one of your homes and you're not there, the moment I step in through the threshold, I can tell a number of things. Number one, whether you're rich or poor, either that or mortgage to the hilt, but uh, whether you're clean or sloppy, the, the type of uh, artwork you like, the type of furniture you like. I mean, all of that reflects on the personality of that home, whether it's modern furniture, antique furniture, and you know whether the paintings are fine art or modern art and so on and so forth. It, it speaks to me of the person that lives in that house. And so then I, uh, I go to the, uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 5, where God immediately, he said, uh, when he stepped through the, uh, the doorway, so to speak, he said, I was in the throne room. And he said, there was one sitting on the throne. And so I developed this whole teaching around the habitation of God, that if we're really to know God, we need to understand who God is. And the first thing we have to settle is who is going to sit on the throne. And uh, John said, you know, the heavens open and I saw a throne and the, the throne didn't have a, you know, a help wanted sign. The, the throne uh, was already occupied. And the same thing, you know, if God is going to come into our life in, in all of his glory and fullness and so on, he demands the throne. Am I prepared to give him the throne? Of course, the throne speaks of, uh, you know, his authority, his power, his rulership and so on and so forth. And uh, while we don't understand the throne, maybe as as good as the British who, uh, you know, for centuries have had a throne, we do understand again this, uh, the fact that God is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, Jesus uh, gave the illustration concerning himself of the man that gathered together a bunch of people and, and, and sought to set up a kingdom. And after he left, uh, his inhabitants said, we will not have this man rule over us. And I think we're living in a, even within the church, of an attitude that basically says, I'll accept Jesus Christ as my savior because I know I can't get through the pearly gates without having my passport stamped with the blood, so to speak, but I will not have this man rule over me. You know, I'm not, I, I'm not going to buy into this kingdom uh, principle that I've got to, you know, sell out and make Jesus Christ Lord and master of my life. You know, I just want him to get me to heaven and that's about it, you know, and somehow the church has accepted that as a sort of a normal Christianity. And we basically deprive God of uh, the right to rule and reign in our life. You know, that's a, another great point. I know for some that are theologians on this call or listening to this podcast may not understand what I'm about to say, but this is my personal encounter with God 40 years ago when I used the analogy that Jesus I know you're my savior, but yet at the same time, he wasn't my Lord. But here's, I felt a strong conviction of the Holy Spirit that said to me, how can I be your savior if I'm not your Lord? And so understanding lordship really is where salvation comes from. And too often, I think we worship, worship, we worship people, we're, we, uh, we're even in the church, celebrity worship and yeah. worshiping success. We even worship the institution of the house of God rather than the God of the house of God, the L of the Bethel. And so I, I love what you're saying, because it really is about him taking ownership and rulership in our homes. If we're bought by the blood of Jesus, and yeah. we are the temples of the Holy Spirit, then we are to yield to his lordship. It is, it, it, we belong to him now. Well, that was made very real to me as a young man. Again, part, part of my testimony, you know, I was raised obviously in a Christian home. My father was uh, uh, who he is. And uh, I knew that I was going to hell. I mean, there was no question about that. My dad uh, dangled me over hell more than once. 
Uh, <laughs> we don't talk about hell anymore these days, but you know, my father would uh, preach on hell and I, I knew I was hell bound, even though I lived a morally good life. In fact, the, the, uh, I didn't become a Christian until I was 18 years of age. And that was at Bethany Fellowship. I went home that night and my father saw me go to the altar. He wasn't preaching that particular night, but he said, David, what happened to you tonight? And I said, well, dad, I, I accepted Christ as my savior. And I remember he looked at me and he said, you mean you weren't a Christian? So you never accepted Christ before this? And I said, no. Uh, the whole issue, the reason I put it off was not because I didn't want to go to heaven. I knew that I was going to hell. And uh, that should have been enough for me to at least uh, go through some sort of a, you know, for spiritual laws type of thing. But at that stage, the one thing that I had going for me, at least I thought, was uh, I was gifted in the area of art. My two brothers were scholastically, you know, uh, miles ahead of me, but I had the ability to draw. And my whole goal in life was to go into the field of graphics. And I knew somehow, uh, you know, I guess just sitting under the word for years, I knew somehow that God said that, listen, you have to be willing to give that thing up. And I wasn't. That was my identity. That's who I was. It was something I could do. At least I brought home A's on my report card. I may have uh, you know, got F's on other areas, but I always excelled in art. And, and so it, it gave me a sense of, uh, of well-being. But at the age of 18, I went to the altar and uh, God had been dealing with me. I mean, I would literally shake under conviction of sin numerous times, God trying to draw me to himself, and yet refusing to bow the knee to his lordship. And then finally, at the age of 18, one night, I went to the altar. I got down before anybody came to pray for me. My prayer was something like this, Lord, you know, I'm a, a sinner. I rattled off, of, you know, the sins that uh, came to mind. But I said, Lord, I'm not here just to give you my sin. I'm here to give you my life. And I said, Lord, I surrender totally all my desires, all my goals, all my ambitions. I put that before you. Take my life, as the old hymn says, and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I've told people since, as I've uh, you know, traveled, I, I have a message again, of course, that book, Bloodboard, uh, that is based around that. And I, I said, you know, I believe in the average church, average evangelical church, uh, maybe 80 and 90 percent of the people, hopefully maybe even more than that, have given God their sin, but less than 10 percent have given God their life. And God is not interested. You know, I have a whole message again on the on the cross, but God is not interested in our sin. In fact, as soon as he gets it, he buries it in the depths of the sea. As far as east is from the west, you know, he gets rid of it. What he is interested in, he died in order to have a people for himself. And we refuse to give him the purpose of his death. His death was not just to take away our sin. It was to redeem for himself a people. And it's the people that God is after. And yet we never give him our life. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. And yet we deprive God of the very prize that he was supposed to get for his suffering. The reward of his suffering was that he would redeem again a people for himself, you know, and, and God made that very real to me at the age of 18. And it's been my basically my life message ever since. How many books have you written all together? Some of them. I read many of them. You know, some people like to write because it promotes their ministry or their business, whatever it may be. But the content of what you have written is based out of not just theory in the high tower, so to speak, but it is through the crucibles of experience, through personal observations, your own life, the relationships. In fact, something your dad used to teach us as well is that many people want the power of the upper room, but they're not willing to go through the, the place of the cross. And the last couple of books that you've written, tell us a little bit about that and how has that kind of given you a now message that you feel like is important for us as the church to truly flourish in such difficult times? The book that has uh, become my bestseller, so to speak, is uh, called Surviving the Anointing. And that book really is, uh, I got stuck in Singapore on my way to India many, many years ago with another friend from uh, Kansas City. And we were put up in, uh, in an apartment by the Assembly of God Church there. One of the assemblies is dozens of them. I was asked to minister to the leadership. And I took a piece of paper one day and I, I wrote down what I said. Uh, I put the title, Essential Qualities of a Spiritual Leader. And the first thing was dependency, which we've already touched on, that place of absolute dependency. Jesus said, I can do nothing 
unless the father tells me, you know, in other words, he, he modeled for us dependency and that's the beginning of everything. Maybe a couple of years later, I was uh, listening to Paul Kane in Kansas City and I was beginning to develop this teaching essential qualities of a spiritual leader. And Paul Kane made the statement prophetically, I believe now, but uh, he said, very few people survive the anointing. And it was just a, a phrase that I could not get rid of for days. Very few people survive the anointing. You know, either pride comes in or whatever. And so I changed the title of the, it wasn't a book at that stage, but I changed the uh, title, developed it. And so it became a book. Uh, the title is uh, Surviving the Anointing, you know, according to uh, James Dobson. And this is these uh, statistics, uh, statistics go back into the 70s. But he said that 1,500 ministers a month leave the ministry in America, which translates again, you know, this is 20 or 30 years ago now, translates into 18,000 ministers leave the ministry every single year. And the number one reason, immorality. And then the second reason was burnout and a whole bunch of other things. But I, I thought, you know, my burden has been to sort of stem, trying to stem that hemorrhage in the body of Christ and put down some principles. I still believe that that dependency of just constantly depending on God is the key to survival. I remember reading that book, Surviving the Anointing, thought how astounding that was that 1,500 ministers left the ministry every month in America. A few years ago, I read an updated statistic. I think it was over 1,700 now or wow. even more. We've yeah. seen a progression, yet we have the biggest churches. We have all these high-profile leaders, and yet we see the same things that continue to cause failure and again, no leader sets out to fail. We've not set those parameters, those non-negotiables in our life to let the Lord rule in every aspect of our lives. No, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me at all. The, uh, there's a, a major, major falling away taking place within the ministry itself. And, uh, you know, just uh, hard to believe. But uh, personal friends that I've known, uh, world figures that we've all known, and so on. And of course, the Bible is full of individuals. Beginning with Lucifer, you were the anointed cherub. That's where it all began. You were, you, you had a, a position of power and influence and authority. Most theologians believe that he was right up there with Gabriel and Michael and so on, and yet uh, referred to in the past tense. You know, you have people like Saul who began so well, and yet at the end of his life, you know, he says, I've heard exceedingly, I've played the fool. You've got Solomon, the kings of the earth coming to see Solomon. Uh, you know, you've, you've just got numerous individuals, Uzziah, who you know, was marvelously helped by God until he became strong and self-sufficient. And then, uh, you know, he ends up being a leper. I, I mean, you can go on and on and on and on. Samson, all of those was, you know, in the word of God as people that had outstanding ministries. Balaam, some of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament were, you know, from Balaam. We get to the New Testament, we're warned about him, the teaching of Balaam, the way of Balaam, and so on and so forth, you know. so And even the children of Israel, you know, they died in the wilderness, even though they'd partaken of supernatural food from heaven. They'd seen water coming out of a rock that the Bible says was like the ocean depths. I mean, you've got, a most people say, a million people and uh, and then all their livestock and, and so on. I mean, you've got a city, if you put people and cattle and so on together, you know, a city of five or six million people that came out of Egypt and only one water supply. So it wasn't some little babbling brook. You know, it says it was like the ocean depths and they saw all of that. They tasted of that. And yet they died in the wilderness. So, you know, it's that determination, Lord, by your grace, you know, I can't make it on my own. You know, I've got to press in. So, yeah, that book, I think, has become uh, the one that has sold the most. You know, uh, when I travel, uh, people would ask me, you know, what is the latest prophetic word? And I think we were far more concerned about the latest prophetic word than the final prophetic word of, uh, of the seven churches. In the seven churches, you've got Jesus sort of grading the churches, so to speak, you know, what he's looking for. In fact, uh, you know, out of seven churches, he never mentions size once. And, uh, you know, uh, when uh, any group of pastors get together, you know, we establish the pecking order according to how many people we have. Somebody says, you know, I had about 500 people last Sunday and somebody else says, oh, yeah, I remember when we were at the 500 mark, you know, and then uh, somebody says, well, how many are you running these days? Oh, well, we're just, you know, we just uh, we're, we're almost a thousand and somebody else chimes in and says, yeah, I remember when we were at the thousand mark. And so the pecking order begins, but never once as Jesus mentioned size, you know, the richest church was the poorest, the poorest church was the richest. But we've got God's way of grading 
I think we need to study the way that God looks at the churches and the grading system that God uses. Anyway, then uh, I wrote a book almost for fun a number of years ago called The Gentile Roots of the Jewish Faith. I've got a number of uh, Messianic friends, of course, people like uh, Dr. Brown, uh, a number of others, Scott Volk, and uh, you may know Scott, quite a number. One of my best friends, of course, lives uh, right here down around the corner from where I live, uh, Roy Lesson, that did about 90% of all the day spring greeting cards, his own background, Jewish background, and uh, found the Lord and so on. What I find from these genuine Jews that became completed in Christ is that they, they never really emphasize much about their Jewishness as much as they are so fulfilled in Christ himself. As I would teach, I would go to Singapore every year and teach at a Bible school there. I did that for about 14, 15 years, I guess. And now because of my wife's condition, I'm not able to uh, travel. As, as, and then that, uh, that school opened a, uh, the Bible School of Wales, Reese Howes' old school, and I was attending that twice a year. But I would always teach on surviving the anointing, and uh, uh, that was the, uh, the theme that they would give me. I would mention about uh, the fact that before Abraham ever came on the scene, there were 2,000 years of church history before Abraham ever came on the scene. And I said, uh, prior to that, you had a priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood that tops the uh, Levitical priesthood. You had a Sabbath, you had clean and unclean animals that went into the ark. So you had the clean and the unclean. You, you had a, a law given, you had the tabernacle, which I believe was uh, the first tabernacle mentioned in the Bible. I could elaborate on that. It's a fascinating study, uh, the Garden of Eden, where it says that God planted a garden. The word planted literally means comes from the root, root word to drive in tent pegs. So God came down, he drove in tent pegs. It became his earthly dwelling place. It had an entrance on the east. Out of Eden flowed a river. One of uh, Spurgeon's great admirers, or, or one of the people that uh, Spurgeon admired, I should say, was a man by the name of Govett. Govett was a brilliant, brilliant uh, writer. Spurgeon said the day will come when his writings will be worth their weight in gold. And uh, Govett develops the fact that the, uh, the, the, the Garden of Eden was the first tabernacle. It was the dwelling place of God. It was where God came down. It was the headquarters. Man was sent out from there to take dominion over the earth. But he, he makes a statement. He said, throughout the word of God, whenever man made a tabernacle or a temple, it always had a labor associated with it because man is incapable of producing a river. So when uh, Moses made the tabernacle, of course, he, he made a labor. Uh, Solomon made the temple and he extended the uh, the labor to, you know, whatever it was, 3,000 baths or something. And it was basically a huge swimming pool. But he said man was unable to make a river. But he said wherever God has a tabernacle, there is always a river associated with it. So he said in the, in the first tabernacle, you've got uh, the river flowing out, uh, bringing life to the earth. He said in Ezekiel, you've got Ezekiel seeing a river flowing out from the throne of God. You go to Revelation. And of course, you, uh, you've got the river on with the, the trees bringing light to the nations and, and so on. And then the interesting thing is, is uh, we in the New Testament, of course, are the house of God, we're the temple, and out of our innermost being will flow rivers. And so, uh, you know, the whole book really is about the fact that long before God ever established all these other principles that we uh, associate with Israel, they were all in uh, embryonic form, if you like during those 2,000 years. And so I've called it the Gentile roots of the Jewish faith. A little bit of a, a jab at my uh, Messianic friends, some of them. But uh, at the same time, you know, I've said, listen, you, you cannot ne neglect the fact that there was a Sabbath, there was a priesthood, there were sacrifices, clean and unclean animals. There was a, you know, all of those things long before Israel ever existed. Speaking of that, I've got a little book here, in Pursuit of God, some of you have uh, seen that book. It's uh, A.W. Tozer. And at the end of each chapter, it's got these Tozergrams. If you've got the same page on page 117, this is one of the Tozergrams, one of these little uh, statements. He said, am I mistaken or have I noticed among our churches a drift towards the observation of holy days and new moons and seasons? If such a thing is true, let us revolt against it. Let us throw off the yoke of bondage from which we were at a very great cost set free. That's a great statement. In fact, I, I wasn't sure where this whole thing was going to go. I was with a bunch of ministers many, many years ago, and we came up with uh, eight issues facing the church. One was a lack of biblical teaching, another false doctrine. Number three was worldly compromise. 
Number four was a lack of anointed worship. Number five was hirelings and false prophets. Number six was unity at the expense of truth. Number seven was uh, wrong church government. Number eight, a lack of prayer. Number nine, a regression to Jewish traditions. Those are, you know, I think still valid points that, uh, you know, we need to address. But I, I see, you know, this going back, if you like, to the, the richness of the Old Testament. And yet the Bible says the path of the just is a shining light. It leads more and more. You know, we don't get revelation. Well, we can get understanding by going back. But true revelation comes, you know, we're, we're on a journey. And uh, the New Testament is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows. The substance belongs to Christ and always will. And so there's tremendous danger in going back to celebrating all of these feasts as though somehow that's more spiritual. You know, Christ, our Passover, he has been sacrificed for us. And, yes. uh, and thank God. You know, so. I find that the feast are like, instead of raising an altar, we look at them as landmarks or types and shadows that we can see God in them, but we have to bring it to the context of our lives today so we have bearing and direction for the future. And Amen. I've even told people, you know, if I don't forget the moment of the greatest landmark of my life, which was where Jesus revealed himself to me, the work of the cross, the power of the resurrection, but I never make an altar to all the things that God has done. I look at them as landmarks because I don't want to don't want to live in the altars of the past, I want to see them as landmarks to help me to work what God is doing in my life today Amen. and to give me direction for the future. And David, golly, I could listen to you for hours. Would you kind of give us any final thoughts? How can we also get some of your books? How can we find out more? Do you have a website or any way we can find out more how to get your resources? Pray for us and pray for leaders that we too can survive the anointing and we can also persevere with courageous leadership, especially in the days in which we live. My books are all available on Amazon. The last book I put out was called Overcoming the Enemy's Plans to Destroy Your Life, mm -hmm. based around Hezekiah overcoming the uh, uh, St. Echarib, uh, you know, how he removed the, the water supply and uh, so on and so forth, and how we need to remove anything that gives uh, access to the enemy that uh, you know causes the enemy to uh, be able to survive in our own life and uh, and so on anyways that's a great message in itself i mean when yeah. you think of isaiah 37 it yeah. kind of refers to that that it's a day of trouble and distress and contemptibility right. because of the children or even i see that as a generation is ready to come into its destiny but there's no strength to bring them forth. And, right. and in Hezekiah's response to that, wow, what a now word. We need that word. Father, I just thank you. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters that are watching right now. And Lord, we recognize again that at the end of the day, we're just unprofitable servants. We've only done that which we ought to have done. So, Father, we come and we acknowledge again your goodness, your grace in our life that Lord, but for the grace of God, as somebody said, there go I. But Lord, you've lifted us out of that horrible pit, out of that miry clay. You've put our feet on a solid rock. And Father, we just rejoice again in your faithfulness. Lord, we know that you that have begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. And so, Lord, I pray for those that are listening, those that have joined in today, Lord, whatever situation they find themselves in, that, Lord, you are our sufficiency, Lord. You are the one that has the answer to every need, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, whatever it may be. Lord, we call upon you and thank you, Lord, that you're a God that is able again, to do exceeding abundant above all that we could ever ask or think. And I pray your blessing now, Lord, the blessing of God that maketh rich and adds no sorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.